America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A uh, attempt at police reform has actually backfired. Can you imagine in the single party controlled Washington State Legislature in Olympia? They passed a bill that restricted uh, any use of force uh, by the police, e even in situations where it normally would have been necessary to protect people. And uh, that now for people who are mentally ill, who are homeless, who are suffering among the most vulnerable, that uh, has actually increased danger and increased suffering. And we will get to that. There, there's also uh, more, more indication that the majority, perhaps, of sound transit riders, and again, that's an elite group, the sound transit riders. There aren't a lot of people riding the damn train. Uh, but the um, 30 to 40 percent at least of sound transit riders, some people say as much as 70 percent, don't pay their fares. This is what the agency itself estimates, and a different estimate suggests the number could be much higher, between 40% and 70%. Now, what does these two stories both show? They show that what is, is just unbelievable is the impact of a one-party state. And there's actually a surprisingly strong and I think pretty wonderful editorial uh, that ran today in the Seattle Times. And for people outside Seattle, this is goes to the very heart of attempting to make uh, Washington State and basically to make the country uh, more functional and more balanced and more democratic. The editorial today in the Times is by Greg Jane, who is a syndicated columnist, and he's a, an editorial page editor for the Columbian in Vancouver, Washington, which is actually suburban Portland. And uh, the headline, Republican Growth is Good for Washington State. And uh, if you disagree with that, by the way, and you think it's terrific for the Republican Party to be irrelevant and to remain on the fringe in, uh, in, in this particular state, you can give us a call, 1-800-955-1776. The latest insight from Seattle-based pollster Stuart Elway is good news for Republicans in Washington, Greg Jane writes. Uh, let's start with the numbers. Elway who has been uh, taking the pulse of Washington voters for decades, finds that 36% of Washington residents self-identify as being Democratic. Keep that in mind, 36%. 29% now identify as being Republican. That leaves a whole lot of room, he writes, in the undecided middle. But in a state where voters do not register by party, it is meaningful. That is the best possible measure of the zeitgeist in the state. 
In July, Elway says 18% of Washingtonians identified as Republican, and the increase since then echoes national polls. In other words, you've increased from 18% to 29%. Now, why is that? Do you think it's because the Republicans are doing so well? What have you heard recently about Washington Republicans? Not much, because they're irrelevant. What you've heard is how badly the Democrats have screwed things up in Olympia and especially in Washington, D.C. Look, it, it should be very obvious that the people of the United States, including the people of Washington State, are looking very seriously at the uh, problem of mismanagement from the federal government. And uh, despite this shift, and it's a, a very big shift, and here's what Elway said about it. He said, in the 30 years I have been measuring party identification in Washington State, this has been uh, rare to see so large a shift from 18 to 29 percent who consider themselves Republican. Elway uh, wrote that in an article for uh, Crosscut.com. Despite that shift, it must be noted the Democratic Party is still dominant in Washington. We haven't elected a Republican governor since 1980, which uh, it's 42 years. Uh, or preferred a Republican for president since 1984, or elected a Republican to the U.S. Senate since 1998. In recent years, Democrats have taken control of the state Senate and increased their advantage in the state House to 58 to 41. And that has not always served the people of the state well. That's to say the least. Not because, writes Greg Jane, uh, red states are better run than blue states. O on average, they aren't. But because no state benefits from one-party rule. And one of the reasons for that is a uh, lack of qualified candidates representing the party that is relegated to second-class status. And then he goes through how for some of the statewide offices the last time in the last election, which uh, remember is just a little bit more than a year ago, that for uh, many of those candidates, like the one for insurance commissioner, they weren't people that ever run for office before. They were people with somewhat eccentric ideas, not quite out there with good space guy, but uh, who is a perennial Seattle figure on the ballot running for something. And uh, his platform, whatever he's running for, including mayor, is uh, basically developing space colonies uh, for humanity. But uh, in, in any event, they, they point out that in most nationwide, statewide elections two years ago, Republicans weren't simply defeated. They didn't show up with the best and the brightest of their party uh, finding more productive things to do rather than fight an unwinnable battle. And this is a shame that it even is known as an unwinnable battle. It was uh, really uh, two gubernatorial uh, races back. Uh, Bill, Bill Bryant was a candidate for governor. And before that, Rob McKenna was a candidate for governor in a very close race. 
And what they're talking about here is uh, actually motivating more people, maybe with these encouraging polling numbers, Republicans to contest legislative seats. Uh, I'm very encouraged that we have a terrific uh, challenger to uh, the Democratic uh, Kim Schreier, the Democratic uh, uh, congressman from uh, who's a part of the Seattle suburban area. And Kim Schreier is being challenged, among others, by Reagan Dunn, who is on the King County Council and is an outstanding. And that 8th District, his mother once held that seat. And uh, he's a terrific candidate. He's been on the show frequently. Uh, Greg Jane goes on, now as polling shows, reports of the death of the Republican Party have been greatly exaggerated, and Democrats have themselves to blame for the Democrats in the legislature have spent only the early days of this year's session trying to dig themselves out of a hole by rethinking a long-term care act and police reform measures and talking briefly about reducing penalties for drive-by shootings. Yeah, good idea. Uh, those wounds have been self-inflicted and Republicans are taking advantage. So let's talk about some of those wounds and more about how you end a pandemic. That and more coming up on The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Could it be, you, you may ask, that a uh, police reform bill that is supposed to be uh, uh, actually make things safer for, uh, for people in general from police excesses could, quote, backfire? How could it not backfire? The, uh, there's a, a profound story that is made all around the country it's uh, a story that originally appeared in the Associated Press, and it begins by saying, for months, Diane Ostrander worried desperately about her son. The 34-year-old had rambling conversations with the television and vowed to kill police. He ranted about children he didn't have being stolen. He wandered outside overnight in a rainstorm saying he needed to fix a power transformer. As his condition worsened, the police Ostrander begged for help, relayed a consistent message. A new state law meant officers couldn't take her son to get help against his will, even though mental health professionals and a judge ordered it. Democrats in Washington state approved the law known as House Bill 1310 as part of an ambitious police reform package that followed the protests for racial justice that swept the nation in 2020. The law's goal was to make it less likely police would use force unnecessarily or against the wrong person. It aimed to do that by restricting the use of force to cases where officers have probable cause to believe someone committed a crime or there is an imminent threat of injury, a standard found in no other state, and mandating that they use de-escalation techniques when possible. 
In other words, uh, uh, give more power to uh, homeless, insane people and uh, less power to uh, the society in general as represented by police officers. The law has backfired, however, on some of the state's most vulnerable residents, including Ostrander's son, partly because it's unclear and partly because of how it has been interpreted by police, who had warned that the reforms could bring unintended consequences. There have long been calls for alternatives to police responding to mental health and substance abuse crises. Sometimes the presence of officers can exacerbate a situation. A new emergency number, 988, is launching nationally this summer to better coordinate such responses. This is going to be great. Uh, But police are still needed. In Washington, unarmed mental health professionals known as designated crisis responders can have people detained for evaluation if they pose a danger to themselves or others. House Bill 1310, however, includes no exceptions authorizing police to use force to help them. Police uh, frequently took that to mean they're not authorized to do so. Well, of course they took it that way. And by the way, this same approach, actually the, the idea that what you need to do is basically show more mercy and more understanding. This approach also is part of what is wrong with uh, this other highlight in the Seattle Times, sound transit fares on an unsustainable trajectory, CEO warns. Uh, And this has to do with the uh, light rail and other aspects of sound transit. It says uh, revenue from fares on sound transit buses and trains has cratered in recent years as operating costs climb, creating a financially unsustainable trajectory for the regional transit agency. So said CEO Peter Rogoff, telling speaking of board members last week, depressed ridership because of COVID-19 underpins much of the drop in revenue, but Rogoff also blamed an increase in passengers who ride without paying, which comes as Sound Transit's enforcement presence is significantly scaled back. Uh, and by the way, when you say it's significantly scaled back, it's it just hasn't existed. Uh, the uh, Rogos warnings come as Sound Transit works to revamp its approach to fare enforcement, which was shown to disproportionately land on people of color. Uh, this is unbelievable. He says, when you've got a situation with a 98% chance of being out on the system and not being contacted by anybody to have any conversation, that just leads itself, lends itself to further noncompliance, he said. Uh, we need to get back to a place where our passengers are honoring the honor system that we're using. Rogoff's warnings come as Sound Transit works to revamp its approach to fair enforcement, which was sown to disproportionately land on people of color. The agency has uh, previously engaged security guards to check the riders had paid before boarding, but is currently using the use of fair ambassadors instead. <laughs> now listen to this. Listen to this. And, and again, there is a very high representation of homeless people 
uh, riding these buses and light rail. I know the only two times that my wife and I have read light rail, we were the only people in the cars we were in except for homeless people. Uh, okay, fair ambassadors. The ambassadors are not authorized to issue citations for noncompliance, but instead they're offered to speak to the noncomplying uh, passengers, in other words, the, the guys who didn't pay, and to offer them educational <laughs> materials. Uh, there's also, speaking of educational materials, there's right now a lawsuit going on and uh, claiming that uh, what is, is truly necessary here is that uh, they need to uh, declare that there's a constitutional right to ride the light rail without paying. Uh, does that sound like a good idea to you? Uh, this is part of what you get with the... I mean, who thought that it was a good idea, uh, even, even in wonderful Seattle, to have operate a multi-billion dollar, approaching trillion dollar uh, transit system to operate it based on an honor system and uh, then when you ignore the honor system and uh, the estimate that they are they are now reporting is that uh, people who know the system and, and look at the money uh, between 2019 and 2020 revenue from fares dropped from 96 million to just 30 million as ridership dried up uh, when revenue recovered 32% of Link Light Rail's operating cost in 2019. Okay, how much does revenue cover of the cost of operating it now? 8%! The rest of it, uh, for goodness sake, revenue from fares are earmarked now to cover 6% of the agency's costs. The rest of it is subsidizing, yup, homeless people. Good idea. How does that work with putting an end to the deadliest pandemic in recent history? Let's find out with the author of a book about the last deadly pandemic 100 years ago. Coming up. Michael Medved show. It is a pleasure to welcome back to this show uh, John Barry, who is a distinguished scholar at the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. He is also the author of the definitive book about uh, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. It's called The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. Uh, and he has a powerful piece in the New York Times that I think that every American, uh, every citizen of the world should read. It's uh, basically what can we learn from how the 1918 pandemic ended. Uh, Dr. Barry, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, a pleasure to be back. Hope everybody's well. Thank God. <laughs> it's, yeah, feeling fine and uh, so far we've been very fortunate. With the um, with the pandemic, considering the numbers and considering how 
exhausted people are from uh, what's been happening here. Uh, there was a piece by Monmouth, uh, a poll that uh, just came out yesterday, where they asked people, do you agree with the statement, uh, COVID is here to stay and we just need to get on with our lives? Uh, 70% of Americans agreed with that. Only 28% disagreed. How would you answer that, Dr. Barry? Well, actually, I would agree with that. But that doesn't mean that you don't make any adjustments whatsoever. Uh, the virus is still out there. You know, Omicron is less virulent than its preceding versions of the virus. And yet, you know, the seven-day average death toll is actually higher than it was with Delta because it infects so many more people. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily either or. Uh, I, there are a lot of reasons for optimism. I think, you know, the future is bright both in terms of probably the mutation of the virus and certainly when you start getting uh, some of the drugs in, in large quantities. But, uh, you know, what happens between now and then is not at all clear. It's quite possible that the next variant is actually worse than what we've seen. You know, that's what happened in uh, all four previous pandemics that we know about, you know, 1918, 1957, 1968, and 2009. All of them had, uh, you know, a couple of years later, and in, in one case three years later, uh, a serious uptick that at least in some parts of the country was deadlier than any of the earlier uh, variants that circulated. And so what you're saying as I read your article is that it would be very dangerous to ignore the sort of precautions that everybody's gotten used to, which is getting vaccines, getting the booster, which I know you, you feel particularly strongly about is the booster shots. And we so far, only 20% of kids uh, over five have gotten vac vaccinated, but we want all the schools to open. Uh, right. How does that yeah. work? I mean, it's, you know, sort of oxymoronic. Look, I mean, two years ago, I was in a distinct minority when I thought we should have never closed the schools. So, uh, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks you should live your life in a box. I'm not someone who doesn't think that economic uh, consequences don't count. They do. Uh, but everybody wants schools open, particularly parents. And yet, as you just said, you know, no more than 20 percent, I think a little less than that, of the kids are vaccinated. So the way to make sure the schools stay open is to get the kids vaccinated. Uh, it it's, you know, just doesn't make sense to ignore that and stick what? your head in the sand. What do you say to voices that uh, claim that the uh, vaccines now are more dangerous than the virus? Well, I mean, just look at real numbers. I mean, that's just, <laughs> it's just not true. It's, it's a lie. Uh, yes. Uh, and, and again, it's unfortunately, it's a deadly lie for a lot of people. One of the questions, and you'd be the perfect person to answer it, and I hope you can, the United States of America, we haven't ignored the virus. 
Uh, we've disrupted our lives. We have gotten some 70% uh, of people who are vaccinated now. Why do we lead the world uh, in, in terms of deaths from COVID? Because we've been so uh, divided and politicized. Uh, you know, of course, you know, it's possible, you know, our, our numbers are accurate. There are other countries in the world whose numbers are, are wildly inaccurate. It, it's possible, maybe even likely, that there are some other countries that have a worse per capita uh, toll that are, that are you know, uh, developed. But certainly ours, our numbers are terrible. There is, you know, practically every other developed country in the world has better numbers, almost all of them. Some of them incredibly much like Australia, which is very much like the United States culturally uh, and demographically. If you adjust it for population, they have fewer than 3,000 dead. If you adjust for population, that's like 35,000 in the United States. And we've got close to 875,000. It's, you know, it's just a sign of how poorly we've managed it. Wait, wait a minute. Just to get this clear, what you're saying is that if proportionally we have the same uh, proportion of deaths uh, per capita as Australia, we right. would have lost 35,000 people, not close to a million. That's correct. That's, that's the most horrifying thing and, I've ever yeah, heard and today. It's a, a free country that has often been compared to Texas culturally. You know, demographically very similar to the United States. So so what what would you advise? I mean, they call themselves liberal, but they're liberal in the classic sense. So they're actually a conservative government. Okay. And, and that conservative government has been, have they had fewer lockdowns uh, than we have? No, they, they've had, uh, you know, obviously their lockdowns, that's how they, you know, uh, get the death toll down has been more rigorous in the United States, but their economy has not done any worse in the United States. And according to the OECD, it's projected to do better than the United States economy. Uh, you know, Japan's another example with, you know, considerably way much less than half the per capita death toll, uh, whose economy has functioned quite well. They ma manage things by just common sense, you know, avoid closed spaces, uh, crowds, uh, you know, it, it just, again, you use common sense. I don't live how, in a box. I go out every day, uh, but I'm not going to eat inside a restaurant. I do wear a quality mask, a KN95. Uh, on occasions, if I'm flying, I'll wear a regular N95. Uh, and, you know, as I just said, I, I get on airplanes. Uh, I don't live in a box, but I take the common sense precautions. I, I, I think what you're saying is something people need to hear. You had also mentioned before the politicization. Uh, that, that is a unique problem to the United States. I, well, I guess I have some of it in Canada now with the, uh, quote, freedom convoy that has disrupted the capital there. But again, if if we could approach this as a matter of public health and common sense, which is what it is, uh, you don't expect that the pandemic is going to end uh, any time in the immediate future, which is too bad. 
but maybe at least we could make the moves that uh, put us closer to that direction. And that does not involve ignoring the virus or its dangers or exaggerating the dangers, if any, of uh, actually precautions like vaccines and boosters. Uh, John Barry, it's a great pleasure speaking to you. His book on the 1918 pandemic, Indispensable, his perspective worth considering and taking to heart. We will be right back on The Medved Show. God help me, I'm addicted to... The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show. Uh, they are offering a um, tremendous sale over at MedvedHistoryStore.com, and this is not uh, on our history programs, which of course are free to um, Medhead Plus members for the cost of uh, membership, which is twenty-two cents a day. Really, pretty modest. Uh, no, this is actually a, a different uh, offer on CD form, or you can get them downloaded. This is uh, more than 15 uh, different uh, recordings of speeches, public presentations that I've given over the years. Uh, <laughs> I hate to tell you, I don't even remember some of them. Uh, but they're fascinating. They have to do with big lies about the Constitution, uh, the uh, shocking truth about Hollywood and economics and political influence in Hollywood, uh, the um, uh, major lies that undergird people who seek the destruction of Israel, and, uh, and much more. And that's all available now at half price at medvedhistorystore.com. And... Um, Again, a lot of these uh, presentations feature questions and answers, even some engagement, and uh, it's a, a fascinating package, a package with more than 14 hours of stimulation and education at medvedhistorystore.com. We were talking before about the, um, the, the basic failure of the United States which I do think has to do, and it's one of many, many, many indications that our politics is just not in good shape here. Uh, there, are, there are reasons why you have now, it's close to three-fourths of Americans think we're headed in the wrong direction. And it's not just the United States uh, where everything has become extreme, angry, politicized, it, everything is, uh, I mean, even when you're talking about the idea of trying to collect fare from people when they ride on light rail. And some people actually uh, use that as a uh, uh, warm, safe place to stay on riding back and forth and back and forth. Uh, honestly, we can do better. But it's kind of comforting in a way to hear as depressing as the story itself is, the context that it's not just the United States should be pretty clear from Ottawa. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada 
yesterday lashed out at uh, protests against pandemic restrictions over the weekend in Ottawa, uh, chastising demonstrators for desecrating war memorials. I think that urinating on them or dancing obscenely on war memorials counts as desecrating. Uh, Desecrating war memorials for wielding Nazi symbols. What Nazi symbols? Those good old Nazi flags, they're back. And stealing food from the homeless. Uh, The stealing food from the homeless is basically coming into... They they have over 100 trucks parked in different parts of Ottawa blocking traffic and basically closing things down and making it difficult for Parliament, which as I understand back in session, to to get anywhere. But the uh, protest was a culmination of a group of Canadian truckers and their supporters who drove from Western Canada to Ottawa to challenge government vaccine mandates. Uh, Speaking from uh, self-isolation after he and two of his children tested positive for the coronavirus, Prime Minister Trudeau said he understood the frustrations of Canadians exasperated by a pandemic that has taken a heavy toll, but he criticized the protesters for flying racist flags for hurling abuse at small business owners, uh, spreading disinformation, and in one case, going to a homeless shelter in downtown Ottawa and demanding food. They got it, by the way. Uh, There is no place in our country for threats, violence, or hatred, he said, adding that the convoy was not representative of a majority of truckers, 90% of whom are vaccinated. And I would imagine that the the businesses they work for want uh, their truckers to be vaccinated, but the the objection to all of this it it's insane. An Ottawa law enforcement spokeswoman said yesterday that the police had begun several criminal investigations following the desecration of monuments and other threatening behavior during the protests in Canada's capital. A loosely organized, and they put it in quotes, freedom convoy of trucks initially began as a response to a regulation requiring the truckers returning from the United States to show proof of vaccination. But the protest uh, grew into a more general rallying cry by people opposed to pandemic restrictions and to Prime Minister Trudeau. The uh, demonstrations uh, dominated social media in Canada and received wide media coverage. Ottawa police on Monday said 8,000 protesters had uh, been in downtown Ottawa on Saturday. A small fraction of the numbers claimed by some uh, convoy participants and organizers. Ahead of the demonstrations, Mr. Trudeau dismissed the protesters as a small fringe minority and said they uh, would not lead his government to reverse the vaccine mandates. As in much of the rest of the world, Canadians are suffering pandemic exhaustion after enduring uh, months of truncated lives, illness and death, lockdowns and shuttered restaurants, hours of worship and houses of worship and gym and gyms uh, being suspended and interfered with. But in a country with a strong deference to scientific authority, 
and a vaunted universal health care system, opinion polls have consistently shown strong support for public health measures aimed at maintaining the, uh, uh, containing the coronavirus. More than 77% of Canadians are fully vaccinated, which puts them very well ahead of us, as they are in terms of the death rate and other measures. A key organizer of the Freedom Convoy was Tamara Litch, who is secretary of the relatively new Maverick Party. This is a, a right-of-center group that promotes the separation of Canada's three western provinces from the rest of the country. Uh, so they're talking about secession in Canada, and this has nothing to do with language because that one would be Quebec, which is not in the west, it's in the east. While the protests were at times unruly, a majority of the protesters were peaceful. Nevertheless, uh, urine stains were seen on snow covering the National War Memorial on Sunday morning, and demonstrators were also seen dancing on top of the tomb of the unknown soldier. The police towed vehicles that uh, protesters had parked on the memorial, and uh, Jim Watson, Ottawa's mayor, uh, said protesters had uh, disrespected the country's war dead. Some people who may not have been involved in the convoy had, had also called for an attack on Parliament, uh, similar to the January 6, 2021 storming of the U.S. Capitol. But such calls for violence were uh, criticized by the convoy's organizers as well as by many protesters. Uh, in terms of the Capitol and uh, the controversies, they're involved therein. We're going to be speaking uh, tomorrow to Frank Luntz, who has been doing a whole group of focus groups, some of which were cited in a big piece in the New York Times. And uh, that piece has to do with um, what the Times reports is a change in Trump's relationship with the Republican base. And while he still remains by far the most popular Republican in the country and the one that most Republicans, but it's not most anymore, it's not a majority, uh, that he has more support than anybody else. But the uh, latest poll, and it's a brand new AP poll, shows that 44% of all self-identified Republicans don't want Trump to run again in 2024. And what's that about? Part of it, they say, is President Trump is uh, alienated people because of his sane and decent position on vaccines. In other words, wanting to save people's lives. Is that an appropriate uh, reason to question his future? Well, there are plenty of those. And we'll talk about it in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.